Hey everyone, this is Chad Harms, the pastor of Creekside Bible Church. Thanks for taking some time to listen to our latest sermon. This sermon is part of a series called Trumpets and Seals, where we are preaching on Revelation chapters 4 through 11. One of the convictions that has led me to do this series at our church is that the book of Revelation is often a book that people are interested in, but fail to be impacted by. My hope is that this series will change that, at least for some people. With that in mind, I want to invite you to visit the webpage that corresponds with this series. It is wilsonville.church trumpets. On that page, you can watch the sermon videos, but more importantly, there is a respond button that makes it easy for you to reach out to us about the series. If a sermon in this series is impactful to you, I'd love you to reach out. Or maybe you have questions about one of the passages we preach on. Don't hesitate to click on that link and send your question to us. Revelation is a difficult book to understand, even for me, but I'll try my best to answer you. There's one more reason that I want you to visit wilsonville.church trumpets. I'm hoping to put a resource there that offers more insight into the details of the book of Revelation. Like I said, my focus in this series is to show people how God can impact their lives through the book, but I know there's a lot of stuff that interests people, and I want to provide something around that. That resource will be on wilsonville.church trumpets, so make sure to visit the site. Who knows? It might already be up when you hear this. Again, thank you for taking time to listen to this sermon. I hope it will be impactful. In fact, I hope that it will help you to learn and live more fully for the glory of God. Good morning again, everybody. I, uh, I had macaroons uh, last Saturday, not yesterday, um, but last Saturday. Uh, and that's only important because um, they contain almond flour. And uh, as I move towards middle age rapidly, depends. This is how I figured out. I probably told you, but how I know I'm middle age. If I tell somebody younger than me that I'm middle age, they're like, man, you're probably just old. And if I tell somebody older than me that I'm middle age, they're like, oh, you're still young, sweetie. They always add the sweetie in there. Uh, and so that clearly means middle age. Uh, and, and as I move into that middle age stage of life, uh, my body hates all food, basically. Uh, and so I, I knew that these things had almond flour, but I thought little bit of upset stomach, you know, how often do you get free macaroons as a kid's birthday party? If I got to sit through a kid's birthday party, I might as well get something out of it. And so I ate these things and I was fine last Sunday. I was fine Monday and I woke up Tuesday and things were bad. Things were not good. Uh, the world started spinning. I'm pretty sure it was an allergic reaction. I felt like I was going to throw up. It took until Wednesday for that to happen. Uh, and I was actually at one point praying, like let it let it happen, you know, like, let this be done, uh, and, uh, and, and so the week was weird, and the reason I'm telling you all that, because I finished my sermon actually sitting in a park, because uh, I had to kind of work on and off throughout the week, and it just wasn't a normal week, but I'm, I'm sitting in this park, one of the things I love in life, just, there's no reason for you to know this, but I love when I can kind of hear music in the distance, and I don't really know where it's coming from, um, but somebody in their garage by this park was listening to music, they had some country music going while they were doing whatever, didn't know what the first song was, and then the second song, and I just think, you know, maybe God just wanted me to use this illustration, because it, the second song was the old Hank Williams Jr. song, this like, why do I drink, why do I roll smoke, why do I live out the songs that I wrote, am I the only one who knows this, uh, and then he gets to the end, and he says, why, it's a, oh, you're not even are you even country fans? I thought you were. You were shaking your heads because it's a family tradition. That's the reason that he gives. And I'm writing my sermon and I'm, I'm thinking about that idea. Why do we do certain things that we do? And 
And, and I think that a question that many people outside of church and some inside of church have is like, why do you, why do you worship? And, and I use that term both broadly and specifically. I mean, why do you worship in general? Why do you give honor and glory to this, this God that you don't know about, that you don't see? And, and more specifically, I think people really wonder, why do I why do we sing these songs? Like, why do people show up there? It's kind of awkward, right? Like, if you're outside of church. And why do these people all sing to God together? Like, that's a bit strange if you're on the outside. And, and truthfully, for those of us that are Christians, like, sometimes we just, we don't even think about why we do it at all either, right? Like, we, we know we do it. We probably can give some theological reason, but there's not a real connection within us. And, and so the question, you know, like, unlike Hank Williams, it's not why do you drink and why do you smoke? Like, why do you come there? Why do you sing those songs? You know, why do you say those words? Why do you lift your hands? Why do you, you know, kneel sometimes? Like, wh- what is that? And, and if we answer, well, it's a, just a tradition, uh, then that's a really bad answer. That's a really, really bad answer. And also, I would say, if we're just like, because I feel like it, then we'd be liars because we don't always feel like singing the songs, right? We don't always feel like worshiping in a more broad sense. Like, we just don't feel like it all of the time. I'm, I'm reminded, I've told this story uh, so many times in sermons, but my grandma, who's, who's here, uh, she uh, she didn't feel like singing uh, one Sunday in church when she was younger, much younger than today, and uh, she was going through a divorce, and she's sitting there in church, and she's thinking, this all sucks, you know, like, I'm not, I don't want to do this singing thing, and her dad uh, leans over and says, hey, you're not singing. He was a longtime pastor, church planner, you know, like, why aren't you singing, and she says, I don't feel like it, and he, he pretty much says, I, it doesn't matter if you feel like it. That's not the reason we do this. We do this because we're worshiping God. And, and a couple of weeks, within a couple of weeks, maybe even the week, he died in a car accident. And the next Sunday, you can imagine how much she wanted to, to sing, right? Like how, but she heard her dad's words, like, there's a reason that we do this. It isn't just because it's fun or because we feel like it or because it's a tradition. And, uh, and so the question, like, why do we worship, both broadly and more specifically in musical or corporate worship like we do here at church. What is the reason for that? And there's a lot of reasons, I'm sure, that we could come up with. But today, in the book of Revelation, chapter 5, we're going to see uh, one of those big, huge reasons. I think it could be the top reason. I think we call it the top reason. And I'll give you it up front, and then we'll break it down together. The simple answer is this, because God is worthy of it. God is worthy of our worship. Last week I talked about the book of Revelation and all of its difficulty. I'll remind you, John Calvin, uh, famous theologian, said no one can understand it. Martin Luther was like, hey, it's going to drive you mad if you try to read it. Um, kind of wanted it to not even be in the Bible. He disliked it so much. Real story. Um, and, and the reason that it's so difficult, I'm just, some of you this is a reminder, some of you this is important new information, uh, is because it's apocalyptic in nature. It's apocalyptic literature. It's a, an apocalypse. And, and apocalypse, uh, narratives, books, stories, works, they have some things in common. I gave you five last week. I'm not going to repeat all of them. I'm just going to give you two. They contain visions and symbols. And the book of Revelation is really hard to understand because it's pretty much one big vision filled with tons, endless, I would say, symbols. It just makes it difficult to understand. And again, I just want to remind you, this is the last thing I'm really going to remind you of if you were here last week. 
There are four kind of groups that come to the book with different types of understandings for the book. Like, this is how we understand it in a, you know, broad, kind of holistic way. The first, and I think this is the one that kind of confused some people last week, was, is the historicist, and they see this book as representing a timeline through Christian history. So, like, in Revelation 4, you would have, like, a picture of, of you know, like, this is the first century, and then you, you'd go, I'm making this up, because this is, I think, frankly, I'm just going to say it, all right, the weakest of the viewpoints, but then you'd go, like, hey, and, and in Revelation 7, look, that's the... That's the medieval times. And then you go like Revelation 10. Oh, look, it's the Reformation. And so they track kind of the events with these symbols throughout history. The rest I won't explain in as much detail, but I think that's the one you were like, I have no idea what he said last week. Uh, the second group, preterists, they see the book as primarily about events that happened in the first century. And this is most commonly worldwide and in history, the most common view of understanding the book of Revelation. On the other side of that are futurists who see this book as primarily about events that will happen right before Jesus returns to earth in all of his glory. This is the most common view in America today by far. And then the idealists, they see this book as not being about any time or date or specific actual events, but rather a book to teach us morals and theology and really just to teach us ideas and ideals about how to live out the Christian life when it's hard. But in all of that, this is the last thing I'm going to remind you of, in all of that, it's important to remember that all four of these groups and almost every person who studies the book of Revelation comes through it having looked at all the details, thinking different things about the details, and saying, I understand the point. I know what this is about overall, and what it is about is simply this. The book of Revelation was written, was inspired by God to encourage Christians who are struggling with outside pressure and internal rejections of truth, godly truth. Let me say it again. The book of Revelation was given to us, was written to encourage Christians who are struggling with outside pressures and internal rejections of truth. It's really written, it was inspired by God, so that we might continue to serve God and worship God even when it's really, really hard. And it seems in our country today that it, that it gets harder all of the time to be a Christian and to live for the God that we believe in and love. And so Revelation inspired by God, written by a man named John, is there to help us in these times when it's just really hard to remain faithful. And part of the way that it does that, and we talked about this some last week, but it's, man, it's, it's going to be magnified in this passage we're going to look at today. Part of the way that it does that is it calls us to worship, and one of the ways that it does that specifically is that it calls us to worship by peeling back the curtains of heaven and revealing what heavenly worship looks like. And so, in Revelation 5, 1 through 4, this is what we read. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. 
I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. So here's John's vision. And he sees on the right hand, the one who sits on the throne, the representation of God. He sees in the right hand this scroll. And the scroll is sealed, which demonstrates that it's secret. And it's not just going to be read by anybody. Now, I know what you want to know. Like if we left here today and that's all I said, the question would be simply this. What's in the scroll? It has writing all over it, which indicates, by the way, that there's a lot to say in these scrolls because they actually only use the front unless they ran out of room. Reminds me of basically all my papers as a kid where I just t- turned sideways because I would run out of room at the end of the line. Like, that's what it reminds me of. Like, like oh, we better keep going on this scroll. So there's a lot to say. And the question that all of us, I think, would just naturally come away with is like, what's in it? You know, what are the contents of this scroll, and man, there's a bunch of different ideas about this one. Like, I mean, you could go write a doctorate dissertation on like what's in this, right? And I'm just gonna, I'm gonna rapid fire these because I'm gonna get to the point in a minute. I'm just gonna give them to you. Ready? The Lamb's Book of Life, which, by the way, on my 60-page take-home test that I had to do on the Book of Revelation and um, during my master's degree, I picked that one. I don't know if I agree today. That's what the Book of Revelation will do to you. But I picked the Lamb's Book of Life or a sentence against Jerusalem. Those seem really far away. Future events, the forfeiture to Satan of man's original inheritance from God, God's covenant, God's law, God's promises, God's plans, or God's legal will. Got it? So it's one of those or something else. Like that's, that's where we're left, uh, you know, with answering the question, what is in this scroll? Here's my broad personal opinion today, not when I did my take-home test. I think it contains something about the future, as least, at least as the future pertains to the first century audience. I think it is something that has not taken place when this scroll is you know, here now in this moment. It's something that hasn't taken place yet. But here's, here's and I know that you don't like this, and I think it's uh, American of us to not like this. But he just introduces this scroll with the writing and the seven seals. And there's just Google. There's tons of artwork. People like this thing, you know, like this is a thing. But it never describes the contents for us. Nor does John, as inspired by God, seem to care to really tell us what is inside of it. The point, listen to this, this is so important. The point of this section isn't about what is in the scroll but rather about who is worthy to open the scroll. I know it's kind of annoying, but let me say it again because it's so important. The point of this section isn't about what is in the scroll, but rather about who is worthy to open the scroll. Now, that doesn't mean that there isn't merit in considering our beliefs and reading some books and trying to come to our own conclusions about what this scroll might contain. I don't think that's bad. I think that's both interesting and important. But the way that God is trying to impact us through this passage has nothing to do with what is actually written on that scroll and everything to do with who is worthy to open the scroll. Notice the question of verse 2. Notice this question. 
Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? If there's tension here that God's trying to create in the way that he, that he um, puts down this narrative for us, if there's tension, the tension isn't like trying to get you to go, hey, what's in it, what's in it, what's in it? It's to go, who can open it, who can open it, who can open it? Who can open it? And John looks around, he's like, nobody can open this thing. And he weeps. I thought about that, seems weird. I mean, he's kind of having a moment, right? I mean, he's there in his prayer time, and, and that now he's in this heavenly vision. And so I'd be a little emotional too, but I thought about that. Like, let's just pretend I'm right. Very good chance I'm not. But let's say it contains something that's, you know, in the future, at least to John. Like, wouldn't you want to know? Don't we all want to know? Like, I mean, even like in small, the smallest things. I don't know why this one popped into my head this week. But if you would have told me like a week early who won the OJ trial when I was 13 years old, like that would have been a huge deal, right? Somebody's like, I have the verdict. I would have been like, you have to tell me right now. I mean, if, if like right now I said, hey, I have a piece of paper and, and I can tell you how the, what the outcome of the war in Ukraine will be. I said, and you looked, you said, well, nobody can open it. Like, wouldn't you be distraught over that? I mean, even the smallest things, like I would love to know who's going to win the Cowboy game tonight. Like, and if you had it on a piece of paper, like the smallest thing, I would really want to know. And if I thought, well, we have it and nobody can open it. And I think it contains something so important about human history and, and what God is going to do on this earth. Like, can you imagine? You would weep too. You would weep too. But there's good news for John, for all of us. Listen to Revelation 5.5. 5. Then one of the elders said to me, don't weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. John's weeping because nobody is worthy. And then one of the elders, probably representing Christians, looks at John and says, hold on, man, don't weep. There's one person worthy to open this scroll. Hint, it's Jesus. But that's not what he says here. He says, the lion of the tribe of Judah and the root of David. And, and there's this amazing thing that I think is so important about this because here we are in the very last book of the Bible. And this is a callback all the way to the first book in the Bible. The first line, the line of the tribe of Judah, comes from Genesis 49, 9 through 10. It's Jacob. It's one of the patriarchs. Might be represented in these 24 elders sitting around the throne. This might be like one of the guys, right? Uh, like, and he's making these predictions. He says, you are a lion's cub, Judah. You return from the prey, my son. Like a lion, he crouches and lies down. Like a lioness who dares to rouse him. The scepter will not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he to whom it belongs shall come, and the obedience of the nations shall be his. Now you go throughout all of Israelites' history, from Jacob all the way down, and there was never a time when the nations were obedient to the king. There were times when the nation had more and less power, right? But this, this is a prophecy predicting that somebody will come and it won't just be a king that rules and reigns over the people of Israel. This will be a king for all people in every land of every language of every race. 
That is Jesus. And so way back in the first book of the Bible, there's this prediction made. And now we sit in the last book of the Bible looking into heaven. Here's this elder saying, hey, the one who is worthy is the same one. The same one who was prophesied about way, way back at the beginning. But also he's the root of David. Isaiah 11, 1 through 3 says, A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and of understanding. The spirit of counsel and of might. The spirit of, the no- of knowledge and fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. You should read the rest of Isaiah 11. I recommend that. But it points to Jesus. Here, here is Isaiah pointing to this man that we know as Jesus. Romans 15, 12, uh, Paul actually says that, that this points to Jesus, this Old Testament prophecy. And so from, from the very beginning, the use of titles about the promised one who would come, the Messiah, as, G- as Jews would have known him, the one who would come, the Jews looked forward to this, they longed for this, they were desperate for this, the one who would come and set things right, not only for their nation, but for all people, they longed for it. And they longed for it for century after century after century, and then Jesus came, and now Jesus, in the passage that we're looking at, sits in heaven as the one who is worthy to open the scroll. I think it is so important to recognize that Christianity didn't just, you know, come about 2,000 years ago. Now, Christianity, because we didn't know Christ in that sense, sure, it it sprang up 2,000 years ago. But when you become a Christian, you come into a religion that has existed from the beginning that we know of history, of history. And this Jesus character that I choose to follow, that I've given my life to, he was the same Jesus that was prophesied about just a few generations into human existence. And so when this elder says, hey, there is one who is worthy, it's like he's reminding him. This is the same guy who's been worthy for thousands of years. And then we read in Revelation 5, 6, and 7, that I saw a lamb looking as though it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Now the elder, he said this thing, he said that the, that the lion, the root, is worthy because he triumphed. Right, And we, we believe as Christians that Jesus, he came to earth, he lived sinlessly, he conquered sin in that regard, but then he conquered sin again by dying for our sins as the perfect sacrifice, and he rose again, and, and in that there is victory, there is victory over death and sin and uh, slavery to sin and death and to Satan himself in some ways, and, and, and so he, he describes him as the, the triumphant one, but then when John turns He doesn't see a lion. He sees a lamb. Now, this is so important. This is so important because because it calls us back to the Old Testament, but it also reminds us of what Jesus did for us. There's a couple of passages that it might connect to. The first would be the Passover lamb. If you don't know that story, the Israelites were enslaved uh, to the Egyptians and and, and their pharaoh, their king, the Egyptian king, is not letting them go. And so there's this series of plagues. You may have seen the movie. And then at the end of this, God says, I'm going to take their firstborn sons. And so he gives, he gives this prescription to, to the Israelites. He says, 
He says, take a lamb, kill it, put the blood above your doorway, and then I'll pass over your house. Jewish people all over the world continue to celebrate the Passover today as they remember that God you know, was gracious to them, both in sparing their children, but also in setting them free from the captivity. And so here is John turns and he sees the triumphant one on the throne. He sees a lamb, in part, I think, to remind us that Jesus is the one whose blood was shed so that we might be passed over and set free. But on top of that, it reminds us of Isaiah 53, Isaiah 53, 7, talking about the coming Messiah. It says he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent. So he did not open his mouth. Isaiah 53 is like the key passage. Like the Jewish people missed Isaiah 53 because they thought he was coming, and he was going to like take over and be a great military ruler. He was going to be the lion. Isaiah 53 says, well, yeah, but he's also going to be the lamb. And when Jesus came, all the, all the people, they, they were looking for somebody who was going to be a lion. And he allowed for himself to be slaughtered like a lamb. And so when John looks and he sees the lamb and he hears about the triumphant Messiah, I mean, all of this is coming together. Here is Jesus. And where is he? This is so important. Jesus is at the center of the throne, in the center of all that's happening in this heavenly scene, surrounded by the elders and the four living creatures, and we will see all of creation. He is in the spot of God. I think it's important that we remember that we don't shy away from one of the key tenets of Christianity being simply that Jesus is God. Yes, he came and lived as a man, but he is God. This separates us from most other religions, I would say all other religions, we believe our God came to us. Our God doesn't just call us to figure out a way to get to him, but he came to us. The lion and the lamb came to us. And he has this ultimate power that's seen in the seven horns and the seven eyes probably represent ultimate wisdom and so, I mean, man, if you, if you just view Jesus as this nice guy that taught a few good things when he walked around on earth, then you're missing so much because the description here is that Jesus is the lion and the lamb, the root of Jesse, who stands at the center of the throne, surrounded by the angels and the Christians and all of creation in the heavenly scene that John gets a glimpse of. Jesus standing here as God, the root, the king, the Messiah, the slaughtered lamb. And he grabs the scroll and listen to what happens next. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom of priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders in a loud voice were saying, 
Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every living creature in heaven and on earth and under the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. What an incredible scene. I mean, one of the great scenes in the Bible, one of my favorite scenes in the Bible. And while it's one of my favorite scenes in the Bible, it's one of the hardest scenes for me to really, like, picture. Because it's this incredible scene of worship, like nothing we have experienced. The best that I can do, I have two moments, I'll tell you one now and one in a minute. I I went to a Promise Keepers, uh, who can remember Promise Keepers? This was a thing for men uh, when I was pretty young still, and, and it got men together to uh, worship God and to make promises. I was too young. I have no idea what the promises were. But uh, to get men together and make promises centered around faith. And I went, my dad and I and uh, a friend and his dad, we went up to Seattle and we went to the Kingdom, a uh, big, huge football stadium, and, and to worship with, I don't know how many people the Kingdom fit, but let's say 50,000 people, 50,000 other men filled. It was totally filled. 50,000 people. It was awe-inspiring to come to God with that many people from that many backgrounds, with that many voices. It was incredible. And that's the best picture that I have of what this looks like. But here you have something far more amazing because you have the living creatures representing angels probably, and you have you know, all of Christianity represented in the elders, and, and you have all of creation, and they're surrounding God, and they're singing and praising. What a beautiful scene. And, and here's, I, this is, I love this, I love this. There's this little thing that I think is easy to skip over that says, guess what? You could actually be a part of this right now. Because what, what I think I do is like, wow, that will be really cool someday. <laughs> like, that's going to be amazing. There's little, just one sentence in there that's like, wait, you can be a part of this now. Let me, let me read it to you again in case you missed it. it. It said that they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. When you, this is, I love this. This is, this is incredible to me. When you bow your head before God and you pray, you become part of this heavenly worship scene that's so incredible. And since it's kind of a big deal in the Bible, like God, it's like a, it's like a sign of worship that, you know, and sacrifices their smells. And it's a way of, of um, you know, speaking uh, to what God experiences and longs for from us in a, in a way that we can understand and you know our offerings are described as a pleasing aroma to God like as if God is up there you know like like that but like it's a sign that we're doing something so pleasing to him and here they got their they got their their things and the the incense and 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 it's our prayers now now I just pause because the question that I started with is like why do we worship? And the answer is because Jesus is worthy. But like, I'll, I'll just extend that question and answer it really clearly now. Like, why do we worship now? It's because part of that is we get to be part of the heavenly worship that's going on now. 
I, I know that that's just so like out there and like so far from how our, our finite minds can, you know, think and connect. But when we gather here and, 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 you know, Gabe and Mike start playing an instrument and we start singing along with them, like, like there's, there's a part of that that's going to God as a pleasing aroma, something that pleases him. We are joining in with the angels and, and the dead Christians and all of creation in worshiping him and, and when you're alone in your closet and you're, you know, we talked about prostrating ourselves last week. When you're bowing before God, you are joining in the heavenly course of worship. Isn't that so much better for me than I should probably pray today? Because that's what we do, right? Like, hey, how many extra minutes am I going to try to pray this year when we get to the new year? Or, you know, like, uh, there was a sermon on prayer. I should do it more. Like, no, like, don't think I should do it more. Say, I get to. When I bow before God, I get to join in the heavenly course. But the question, because here it is, why is he worthy to open the scroll, right? And they've mentioned he's a conqueror, and they've talked about who he is, this one who's been longed for and worshipped, you know, long before he came to earth. Like, but why here in these verses are they falling before him? Why is all creation worshipping? The first answer, Jesus was slain. John 1.29, the beginning of Jesus' ministry on earth, it says this, the next day John saw Jesus coming towards him and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And here we see a call back to the beginning of ministry. In Isaiah 53, Jesus was slain, he was killed. And why did that happen? In order to save us from our sins. Let me make abundantly clear to you what we believe as Christians we believe that each and every person has sinned. We've rejected God. We've turned our backs on God. We, in some ways, have made ourselves enemies to God. Not because God wanted to be our enemy, because we said, I don't want to do it your way. I don't want, you know, those rules. I don't want to be held down by who you are. All that stuff. We've rejected God. Because of that, whether you like this or not, this is what we believe as Christians. Because of that, we cannot be in a right relationship with God nor can we be in God's presence for eternity. But God, he just wasn't like, well, start over, zap him, you know, let's get on with it. He looked down and said, I'm going to do something about this. And he came down in the person of Jesus. He came down in the person of Jesus, and Jesus lived, as I said before, sinlessly. He lived perfectly. And at the end of that sinless, perfect life, he died on a cross. Now, this is, this is so important because, like, lots of people, have every, everybody's died, right? That's, you know, no longer alive. They've all died. And, and people even, because Jesus was crucified, he was killed on a cross, people have been crucified. But when Jesus died, he was slain for the sins of the world. He literally paid the punishment of hell. Like, he paid for all of the things that you feel guilty about all the time, like all that stuff that you wish you wouldn't have done. You said that thing. You did that thing. Nobody knows about it. You regret it. You feel guilty about it. He died so that all of that could be forgiven. And then he rose again. And if we come, this is what we believe, if we come to believe in what he did and we give him our lives, we follow him, then we are forgiven 
for our sins. And so here in this heavenly course, when they say he's slain and he's made it so that we can rule with him on earth, what they're describing is that Jesus paid the punishment of your sin. He paid the price of hell on your behalf so that when you come to believe in him, you can enter into a relationship with God and even be given responsibility by God. It's incredible. And it's one of the reasons that he is able to open the scroll. He, this is the language that he used here, he purchased us. It's the language that would have been used for slaves being purchased. And, and Jesus did. He bought our freedom for us. And I've already said it. We were slaves to sin. We were unable to stop sinning. Like even if we didn't want to, even if we didn't want to tell those lies and say those things and do that stuff. Like we were just unable to break free from that, but Jesus was slain so that we might be set free. And on top of that, he died so that we might be set free from death. Like when we leave this earth, we actually don't have to die as Christians. We get to live for eternity in heaven. And so these people, these these angels, all of creation, they surround Jesus and they say, there's one reason that you're worthy to open that scroll. None of them go, I really wish I knew what was on it. I say, you are worthy because of who you are and what you did. And what you did was die for us. You died for us. And they sing, and there's countless angels. And I said some of this last week. They express God's worthiness back to him. And now the big addition to all this, all of creation worships. Here's what my professor says about that, Dr. Kuykendall. The point of all this is that the praise of Jesus, I want you to listen to this. Look up here. I want you to listen to this. The point of all this is that the praise of Jesus is to extend outward. It started with the inner circle represented by the living creatures and the elders. Then it extended to the host of angels who take up the praise. And then the earth and its creatures follow suit. Listen to this. This is the most important part. The destiny of the entire universe is adoration All things find their fulfillment and their true meaning of their being in a climax of service to God and revelation of His glory. You were made to worship God and you should do it because you feel like it, you had a good day, it's a tradition, Eh. because He is worthy. He is worthy because He is was slain. Now here's here's what I love. You've you've heard this, you've heard this, I'm sure. If you've, you've been in Christian circles for any amount of time, then you've heard this at least. I don't know what the future holds, but I know who holds my future. And, and usually when we hear that, we think that's great. He's got the future. And in this passage, it just takes it one step further. It says, I know who holds my future, and I'm gonna worship the one who holds it no matter what it contains. That's the imagery here. I don't know what the future holds, but I know I'm going to keep worshiping the one who holds it because he is worthy of my worship. You should worship even when it's hard because Jesus is worthy. Four things I think are so important. One, when you worship, you join in the heavenly course. Two, it's your destiny. It's the destiny of all creation. Three, the one you worshiped was promised long before you existed and long before he walked the earth. And four, he died for your sins. And so what are we 
to do about it. And I think there's two things. One, live a life of worship. Now, part of that, I mean, Romans 12 tells us that, that our, our spiritual act of worship is to be a living sacrifice. Like everything we should do, do is should be worship. Like we should aim to make all of our lives worship. And I, that's important. But I think that we need to live lives of worship in the sense that we make time to sing to God, to express God's worthiness to him, and as I said last week, to give back the honor to him that he has gifted us with. So I want to, I want, this is, this is my challenge for you this week. Like, like, I want you to spend time. Last week I said consider who God is and what God's done and all that. But I want you to take time and I want you to join in the heavenly course. Find a closet, find a room. If you're like me and you have a terrible voice, make sure nobody can hear you. Uh, and, and like, just go and sing to Jesus and remember as you do that you are joining in with the heavenly course because Jesus is worthy. And then the other thing I would say is that remember when we sing, and we're going to do that again in a second. You could have guessed that. When we sing, this is no small deal. It's a recognition of the worth of Jesus. We are declaring you are worthy of this no matter how I feel, no matter how we kind of fight out with my spouse on the way here, no matter what's going on in my life this week, no matter what's on the calendar, you are worthy of it. And so when we sing, we do, this is not a small thing. This is not some songs. This is not a concert. This is us joining in the heavenly course, letting our incense rise to heaven. I saw it once. In a way that I don't know if I'll ever see it again, I was I was leading this this fall camp for high school kids and and uh, I, I preached some sermon in my sweatpants and um, I, I don't think it was a particularly good one, uh, but then our music leader uh, he starts strumming the guitar and there's no prompt and these kids. They just get down on their knees. You know, it's an intimate setting. It's 20, 25 people in this room. They're down on their knees, and they are just singing to God. And, and they're not even singing. Our music guy isn't singing. <laughs> like, there's no leading. Like, nobody's leading this. They are just on their faces singing to God because in that moment, they recognized how worthy he was. And so as you recognize the worthiness of the one who holds your future, I would hope that you would make a commitment to worshiping him. Let me pray that you will. Lord Jesus, um, I, I'm, you know, as guilty as anybody. I can come to church and, you know, it could be the only time I sing to you in a week and I can uh, uh, come to church and, sing and not even think about what I'm singing, not even consider, God, um, <laughs> your worthiness. And, and that is a travesty, Jesus, because you are so worthy of everything that I have, like at least my songs and my prayers, Lord. And so I pray, God, for, for, for these people in front of me, those watching online right now, and I ask uh, that you would compel us to to, to lift our voices to you more frequently, uh, like with just our words, our expressions of praise, but also our songs to you. And God, and not more, just more frequently, but um, more deeply, Lord, 
I prayed before I came out here with Mike and Gabe, Lord, and, and said, help us to worship in spirit and in truth today, God. And I think when we consider your worthiness, that you are the one who is worthy to, to hold our futures in your hand, then, God, we are compelled to worship you in spirit and truth. And I pray that our church more fully, when we sing, we wouldn't just go through the motions and sing some songs. and It wouldn't just be a family tradition, God, but it would be coming from the depths of our soul because we recognize your worthiness. I pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.